0: To actually enable Central Americans to stay home, as Vice President Harris suggested, President Biden will need a really new approach to Central America, one that focuses on actual justice. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get an back from the nurse's station.
0: Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through.
1: Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profits, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen
0: is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country,
1: and without them knowing what it was doing,
0: there's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military.
1: So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and that people don't feel they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: How bad would things have to get for you to abandon your home? To take an extremely risky journey of hundreds of miles with highway robbers ready to pounce every inch of the way. For domestic political considerations, on her recent trip to Guatemala and Mexico, Vice President Kamala Harris had to say these words to potential immigrants stay home. But the people of Central America know all too well how incredibly unrealistic that is. Unless and until there's an understanding of what drives people to that level of despair, that they would risk everything for a frightening unknown. Of course, telling Central Americans to just stay home is empty words bordering on meanness. It's not really any mystery as to why they leave. The question before the Biden administration is... Are they serious about taking a new approach? There is a many decades-long pattern of supporting corrupt, militaristic, repressive governments that only serve the wealthiest exploiters of natural resources and the powerless people. Surely the Biden administration knows that... This is the reason for the waves of refugees. The president has talked about taking a new approach, directing American aid to where the actual need is instead of the old familiar pattern of adding to the wealth of ruling families. Vice President Harris at that news conference said, part of giving people hope is having a very specific commitment to rooting out corruption in the region, end of quote. So now the question is, will there be a new direction, a new policy that actually enables people to stay home? Speaking to us from Mexico City, our guest Laura Carlson writes that there is one huge factor in whether or not it really is a new approach. She writes, the trial for Berta Carceres murder will test Biden's Central America policy. Laura Carlson is director of Global Security for Just Associates, an international organization that supports feminist movement building in Mesoamerica, Southern Africa, and Southeast Asia. She also leads the Americas program, an independent think tank on U.S. policy in Latin America at Americas.org. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Laura Carlson. You're in Mexico, which all refugees pass through on their journey to the U.S., how do you think potential refugees reacted when they heard Harris advise them to stay home?
1: Well, there was a great deal of indignation because they don't have the choice. And even Kamala Harris, when she was here in Mexico, you know, she she said that the majority of migration from Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador. Uh, are, is forced migration, which is to say that because of factors like violence or the inability to, be, to meet even basic needs, people have no options to remain in their communities and continue to survive, essentially. So, it's a real contradiction that she would act as though this were just an option and, uh, and put out the message, do not come. To people who are in that kind of a situation where it's literally a life and death decision. Some people even flee, you know, from one day to the next, taking only what they can carry on their back. Many people are in that situation. So here we had a response from the immigrant communities that we work with in Mexico and also the communities in Guatemala and in Honduras and in El Salvador. You know, saying this is this is just not an, a a realistic approach. If you're really going to go to the root causes, you have to look at what's causing people to leave, uh, and not pretend that it's a disciplinary measure. Uh,
0: <laughs> disciplinary measure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it hard to think. I mean, I, I never can figure out when uh, there's odd thinking to me and how they get. To that thought, disciplinary. Not likely. I mean, it's like, why do people... Well,
1: they get to disciplinary for, you know, just directly from contention. Because what it reflects, too, is that both the U.S. government under Biden, which claimed you know, they were going to have a new paradigm for immigration, hmm. and the Mexican government are still operating with the logic of contention. Our basic goal is to just keep people away.
0: Hmm. We just want to keep people away. Well, that, yeah, it's amazing to me how I was just reading today that the Republicans are once again looking to the immigration issue as the issue for the elections in 2022. There's just a little bit of racism in there, I'm sure, but uh, I would think that it would be in the Biden-Harris administration interest to do something to actually address the desperate conditions that, that people feel there. And at that news conference, she linked uh, Harris linked two priorities of the administration. She said, in addition to urging potential refugees to stay home, there was an insistence that the Biden administration will not tolerate corruption. My question is, why does the pledge to root out corruption generate skepticism? Where has similar sounding U.S. aid and largesse gone rather consistently in the past 75 years or so?
1: That's right. Corruption has been a, a major discourse of U.S. governments, both Democratic and Republican, for several decades now. And what we've also seen is it's been a major pretext for intervention in the internal affairs of other nations. Everyone's against corruption. It's absolutely true that uh, that countries, in especially Guatemala. And um, El Salvador and Honduras, you know, are suffering because of corruption, because of the huge amount of national wealth that the yeah. elite, the corrupt political elite, takes off, skims off the top. You know, so that's not in the debate. What's in the debate is how you do it, and the way the United States is doing it has been highly selective. You could definitely call it a double standard. Hmm. You have a government as corrupt as Honduras. That gets a pass, basically, and then uh, you have uh, sometimes actually inflated and dubious allegations of corruption against governments that are are against U.S. hegemony in their in their country and in their region.
0: Aha! Uh-huh. This, like uh, humanitarian assistance, mm-hmm. can be used. Uh, to do things that are not particularly humanitarian. And I'll tell you, in the early 1970s, as I'm sure you know, a massive earthquake devastated Nicaragua's capital of Managua. American citizens of good heart raised a lot of money to help the people of Nicaragua rebuild. When I was there in 1986, I was rather taken aback. that, at, at, Except for the tall weeds everywhere, it looked like the earthquake had been recent. It wasn't built back up, the this, this city of Managua. I, I found business cards describe the location of their business as near where the such-and-such such used to be. No doubt you know sure. where the money went. <laughs> but I wonder how the system was set up to siphon not just government aid, but relief money to the ruling Somoza family and if that's uh, replicated elsewhere
1: well that's certainly what happened in in, in Mexico in nineteen eighty five too that the aid money uh, went to other places and that's what's happening in Honduras right now with both the pandemic aid money as well as um, funds that came in after the hurricanes there's a lot of evidence that that is not going to the people e- either so this is a this is a common Result of allowing corrupt or not allowing because it's not right the role of any other government, you know, to right. decide who's there, but basically um fomenting you know corrupt leadership in these countries and working with them to repress the people themselves, the populations themselves, when they try to stand up against those governments again. Honduras is the case in point with uh, with massive demonstrations against the Social Security fraud case of Juan Orlando Hernandez, then later this his, his, the way that he stole the elections in 2017, um, and now the population is mobilized to fight for a fair verdict in the case of Berta Cáceres. So the population has been very aware of what's happening in their country in terms of corruption, and that they've received very little support from the U.S. government, even in the framework of what they claim to be an anti-corruption campaign for the region.
0: I suppose uh, corruption is in the uh, eye of the beholder, I guess. Before we get to the better uh, Caceres case, I find it curious that Vice President Harris chose not to visit Honduras. Is is that where most of the refugees come from, or certainly a lot? And isn't that where, in the face of a reason to hope for a new direction under the new president back in 2009, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton quietly supported regime change at that time. And I can't help but think that the people of Central America, Mesoamerica, I guess is a better word for it, may have been hopeful that there be a new president, uh, that there be a new policy under this new president, Barack Obama. So, does the U.S. have different standards of what's called corruption? Uh, Tell us about Honduras now, relative to what could be called corruption. You've spoken about it a little bit. Let's hear some more. Yeah,
1: definitely. The... The role of the coup d'etat, which was on June 28th, the 12th year anniversary, in terms of the deterioration of Honduras, as what many call, and there's certainly a lot of evidence for it, a narco-state, you know, it played a very major role, because when the democratic institutions, which were not strong, because it's been typically, you know. faced interventions for many, many years, but when they were actually broken completely by a military coup in 2009, uh, they never were rebuilt. What was rebuilt was a country that was made to order by very powerful political and business interests supported by the United States, because as you mentioned, while there was a lot of hope, and at first there were strong statements from the Obama administration saying we will not tolerate a coup a coup d'etat in this century and efforts to isolate the coup regimen, in the end what they did was uh, orchestrate a return or orchestrate an election that was sponsored, that was held by the coup regime and has um, you know has led into power the same elements that were responsible for the coup ever since then. That means that there has been no opportunity to rebuild democracy within the country. There has been severe repression that has caused hundreds of lives. Uh, the country has become the major major trafficking area for uh, for illicit drugs going to the U.S. market. Uh, Basically, there's been deterioration in in rule of law on almost every front you could possibly name. Femicides and violence against women have also gone up exponentially since then, and this has been the general tendency to the point where Honduras was one of the highest per per capita murder rates in the entire world. Now, we're seeing a situation where uh, there's still a great deal of protest against Juan Orlando and... When we talk about a narco state, his brother was tried and convicted in a court in New York of being a drug trafficker. And during that trial, it was found that the money that he earned from illicit drug trafficking to the United States went into his brother's campaign. Now, there are more trials that implicate Juan Orlando Hernandez himself, the president of Honduras, Mm. in this illicit activity. So from all sides, there was no way Kamala Harris could go to Honduras and stand up beside this man who's their ally, supposedly, their Mm. counterpart for an anti-corruption campaign when um, there's so much evidence that he is precisely the problem that they're supposedly trying to confront.
0: And it makes me wonder about when Obama said that there wouldn't be any coups, any more coups in this century. Uh, I wonder if it was... Uh, well, well, as H. L. Mankin said, never assume ill intent where mere incompetence is the likely culprit. I wonder if it was mere incompetence on the part of the Obama administration that let slip this coup in two thousand and nine that that uh, Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, uh, kind of rubber stamped how did How did they come to that change, do you think?
1: Well, they had, uh, you know, it was it was something that those of us who were reporting on it uh, on a day-to-day basis were surprised at because we believed in the statements at the beginning that the coup would not be allowed, that there were to be returned to constitutional order with the elected president, uh, Manuel Zelaya, returning to the country in mm-hmm. order to serve out his term and re-end uh, and go back to a democratic process, and that's not what happened. Essentially, it was not a mistake. It's very clear now, and in fact, Hillary Clinton admitted it in her autobiography, that there was a very well-thought-out effort to make sure that the elected president did not return to Honduras. And that the coup regime be allowed to, to carry out the elections its own way. Of course, those elections were boycotted by the opposition. Um, I, was, uh, I was at those elections, and it was amazing to see the, um, the degree of participation of the international ultra right. You know, the observers that they got were from fascist forces from other parts of the country. Uh, I mean from other parts of the world and basically yeah the the um the the international right elite that have been very involved in sustaining this coup and that worked with the United States, basically, what they were afraid of is that the Honduran government was uh was had alliances with Venezuela and with left wing countries in in Latin America at the time. It was by no means a radical left-wing government, right. and was Zelaya was a moderate, you know. In yeah. many ways, yeah. um, but they 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 presented a strong example that even the slightest move to break out of uh, of a neoliberal system would, under U.S. hegemony, would not be tolerated.
0: Mm. Not be tolerated, yeah. Like I, it always bugged me when I heard. You know the description of uh, Central and South America as our backyard. It's not our backyard. It's their yard entirely. For those of us who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking with our guest Laura Carlson in Mexico City, who has written uh, a, a new article titled "The Trial for Berta Caceres Murder Will Test Biden's Central America Policy." So. Let's go to Berta Caceres. I, I did a show on it a number of years ago, but please tell us the story, where it is now, how it may be a measure of how new and different Biden's approach may be. Who was Berta Caceres? Why, why was it so important that she be killed? And what about her strength now? I, there was something about uh, there are many Berta Carceres now.
1: Yeah, it's important to start with what an extraordinary woman and grassroots leader she was. Um, she was an example for all of us who knew her in the struggle. She was a feminist, an internationalist, an indigenous woman who organized indigenous people in Honduras, the Lenca people. And when a hydroelectric uh, plant was, was uh, slated to dam the river, that was the lifeline for many of the Lenca communities, she organized the resistance to that dam um, on the Rio Guadalcanque. As a result, she came straight up against very powerful interests in the post-coup Honduras that we were talking about, uh, namely the oligarchy, the families that, that held all the strings in terms of the national economy, as well as international investors and bankers that were supporting the project uh, as a major energy project. There had not been the proper consultation with the Indigenous people. You know, there had not been a concern about what would happen to them as so often happens in extractive industries in these countries, we're talking about that's another concern about the Biden plan that it actually promotes the kind of extractive industries that are displacing communities, particularly rural and indigenous communities in these countries, and forcing them to migrate. Mm. So, on March second, two thousand sixteen, uh, the company, aided by the uh, uh, military. Members of the military sent Hitman out and went to her house in la Esperanza and she was and she was shot to death in her own home. Uh, there's been a huge struggle for justice it's It's not a given. We're talking about a country where impunity, you know the lack of access to justice is extremely high. but between her family and then the international networks of solidarity that she herself built during her lifetime. Uh, There's been constant pressure to have a fair trial, and so actually the hitmen were tried and convicted. And now this current case against David Castillo, who was the CEO of DESA, the company that was building the hydroelectric project, is what's on trial now. They just rested and are waiting for a ruling, and that begins to go to who were the masterminds behind this assassination.
0: Wow, interesting, hot stuff, I must say. So, the only convictions uh, have been the the people who actually carried it out. Is that right? So, David Castillo uh, is a central figure, and and he's on trial now. Where where does it stand? And and the money, the
1: trial's been going on. There was a number of delays. Some Uh, of them were were supposedly pandemic related. Uh, But now, just recently, the defense and the prosecution rested, and they're expecting a verdict very soon within the trial. And during the trial itself, thanks to the efforts of the family uh, and the prosecution, they were able to present not only the evidence that links David Castillo to giving orders and being in direct contact with the people who carried out the crime. But they also um, exposed to a large degree what they call the criminal network behind the crime itself, the powerful economic interests that wanted to build this hydroelectric plant and that, that actually maintained power within Honduras. So this is actually this is a critical trial because it links the material authors of the crime, <laughs> you know, the hitmen, yeah. with the uh, masterminds, with the people who gave the orders for that. And then the anticipation is that they will actually be able to go even even further in a number of other accusations to other people who were involved in planning the crime to get rid of Bertha Casares, who was a thorn in the side of their profit-making activities on link land So
0: so she uh, got in the way of of some powerful, nasty people who stood to make a lot of money. That's a dangerous place to be, and I'm sure it puts... And she got in the way of a system, a
1: neoliberal, you know, extractive system that says that natural resources are there to make a small group of people, transnational corporations national companies, you know, very, very wealthy, and that that's what development is. And of course, she was talking about a whole different definition of a development for the Lenka people that was respectful of the environment, and that's just, that's not a a model that they were willing to uh, permit at all.
0: So I know that there have been some very large hydroelectric projects all over the place that are Extremely uh, heavy footprint on the earth. What tell? I don't tell us about this area where this particular hydroelectric project was planned. And I'm assuming they didn't ask the people who who live there. What's What's the area like, and how big was it planned to be? And where does the hydroelectric project stand now?
1: Well, it's been suspended. The major financers, again after a huge uh, effort by the by the family, and by the Lenka communities, some of the major funders, such as European governments and others, actually pulled out their funding. The Chinese government was at one point involved, and they pulled out kind of early on, Uh, so the, the project is suspended, but it's not totally canceled. They still have to continue to make sure that this project and other projects, are not imposed on them. Mm. What it does, essentially, you know, hydroelectric project, it it dries up the river right. downstream for the most part that uh, people t- that people depend on for agriculture, for fishing, for human use, you know, for all kinds of everything that we depend on water for, you know. Yeah. So that that was uh, that was. What was so important to the Lincoln communities, and again, it's one of many projects. We're also seeing the criminalization of environmental land defenders in in other parts of Honduras. via yeah, one um, against dams, against mines, and not just in Honduras, but in other parts of Central America and and the countries. It's these two different models of what development means and what's sustainable, you know, whether it's going to be sustainable or not, that are clashing with very powerful and brutal and deadly forces mm-hmm. and with tragic consequences.
0: Brutal and deadly forces, that makes it a little bit different from many other places, because you know, many other places I, I know in Brazil, you know, if people who live in the uh, uh, less developed areas try to stand up and fight against the massive logging operations, uh, they're in some danger as well. And it seems like that's sort of a uh, a parable to what's going on worldwide. Should the Earth be able to be exploited for, you know, coal and gold and zinc and uh, uh, lithium for the benefit of a few? Or... (laughs) Might there be a different way of developing? Is there is there a left in, in Honduras right now? I know that uh, the President Zelaya was, you know, slightly left, but is there, who is, who is uh, the biggest opposition now and the, the force that the uh, corrupt government is most afraid of? Well, probably, first of all,
1: when you talk about the land defenders, you know, there's now, it's recognize the, the, the threat that they're under. And global Witness and other organizations keep an annual account of the number of land defenders attacked and assassinated every year, uh, and Honduras is frequently at the top of the list on the global level. It's a recognized phenomenon that to defend land at a time of resource grabs, which is the stage of capitalism in which we're currently living, mm. you know, is to put your life at risk. So that's part of it. Now, in Honduras, it's a very complicated question. It also depends on how one defines the left. Uh-huh. Um, sure. Mel Solaya has a, a party that's an opposition party to the coup parties, the parties that have been involved in some way in the coup, which is the national party and the liberal party. Uh, it's called Libre. But there's mm. a huge part of the resistance in Honduras that also it's not convinced that the electoral, that the party system is going to actually free them from the kind of repression and um, in, in the system of exploitation that they currently live under. So it's, it's quite dispersed. Uh, there's, a, there's a powerful movement of resistance. You can see them in the streets when rights are threatened and when land battles and conflicts come up like these. Um, Indigenous organizations are taking a leading role, women are playing a leading role. Many of them are the land defenders that come under threat and that are at the forefront of the movements against these extractive projects, Uh, and there's some articulation between, you know, and coordination between these organizations and between their struggles uh, but it's also it is quite dispersed in other ways.
0: Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot going on there. But I suppose it's nothing like uh, adversity to uh, to organize as an organizing tool. <laughs> it's probably pretty effective there.
1: Uh, well, the elections are always a trigger because of of the fraudulent aspects. Juan Orlando Hernandez was not even supposed to run for re-election because it's prohibited by the Constitution, yeah. and yet he managed to stack the courts, get permission to run from re-election. Then, by all accounts, he lost the election, and managed over to kind of overrun the electoral tribunal, and and be declared president anyway. So there's elections coming up, and it will be. Uh, It'll be very interesting to see what it does in such a bottle, volatile situation as Honduras is in right now. And how do you,
0: how aware do you think uh, people uh, are of Vice President Harris's words and the fact that she kind of had to skip Honduras? I mean, I, in a way, that's, that's a good thing because, you know, some other people, presidents and vice presidents, might have been happy to put their arms around this corrupt guy. But uh, how much, with the election coming up there, do they, I mean, they know the history of (laughs) U.S. imperialism uh, and neoliberalist policy uh, in the area a lot better than every American, I would think, every uh, citizen of the United States, that is. So I wonder how uh, closely they're looking, and no doubt the people all know somebody who's at least thought about uh, leaving uh, Honduras to go to the United States. I wonder what their impression is. Do you have any sense of that? I mean, you're in Mexico City, but uh, you keep in touch with uh, Honduras.
1: Yeah. In fact, we just did a panel lately for the anniversary of the coup d'etat and had a discussion and also talked about the Berta Cáceres case. Uh, And yes, everyone does know someone who's left, and most people have been through the resistance period and the repression of both the coup and the 2017 elections and some of them go back far enough that they were disappeared by the death squads in the 80s as well. Mm. So there's cycles of resistance, and the people are very well aware of it, and they're very well aware also of the U.S. role. This is, again, something that Berta Cáceres emphasized, and she talked about uh, Hillary Clinton's role in supporting the coup after it happened when in you know, just a, just shortly before a few years before she before she was assassinated is so it's, it's very much part of the political culture the role mm-hmm. that the united states has played there's some there's you know in terms of the immigration there was some hope that they would have a different situation under the biden administration right. and there still may be some hope regarding that in terms of you know more humane treatment But there's a lot of confusion about what the $4 billion plan will really mean on the ground for these countries. And in fact, those of us who've been analyzing it, there's still a lack of transparency in in the details to the plan. And there's still some disturbing repetition of precisely the same model that we saw during the Obama administration, which in large part contributed to these waves of immigration that we're seeing now.
0: Wow, interesting For those who may have just tuned in Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive We're talking about Honduras And uh, how it may how the Biden administration may affect Honduras, how Honduras may affect the Biden administration. Our guest today is uh, Laura Carlson in Mexico City, and she's written a piece called, uh, the title is The Trial Roberta Carcerus uh, Cáceres. Uh, Murder will test Biden's Central America policy. That trial is going on now. And one g- more question about the trial. During David Castillo's trial, there were tapes of phone conversations presented. Who, how would they... Who would have the ability and court-approved reason to tape-record it? I'm a little curious about that.
1: Well, they were able to, I think, subpoena you know these recordings from the cell phone, and that's where they found the direct uh. communication between uh, Castillo and Douglas Bustillo, who is a former security chief of the uh, energy company Desa, and was one of the people who was con- who was convicted for the murder. So the evidence that they were able to present linking Castillo to the crime was really overwhelming. Mm. And then there was a lot of popular, you know, there's been a lot of popular support for a fair trial. They set up what they call a feminist camp in front of the Supreme Uh Court. There's rarely been, you know, a judicial process that has been so closely watched on both the national and the international level with the idea uh, that, uh, they, that they need to keep attention on the case in order to prevent strong pressures, including rumors, and these are not proving enough bribes, and of, of directly pressuring the, the judges involved in the case uh, to, to, um, to declare Castillo innocent. Uh, we'll see what happens in a few days, but we noted, and there's been letters to Congress. There've been some. There've been con- congressional representatives in the United States who've expressed concern about this case too. Uh-huh. And in all of those, they talk about this case as emblematic of both the capacity for the Honduran state to apply justice, and also of um, of what happens when you have a lawless state with very powerful economic and political interests come up against um, indigenous communities who are defending their land.
0: And one has to wonder about systems of justice. And here, you know, on this side of the border, it seems we have at least two systems of justice, one for those who can afford it and the other for everybody else. And it's quite different. Uh, I, I wonder how independent the system of justice can possibly be there. I mean, they must be under some political and sometimes even physical threat as well. How is there faith that the justice system is independent
1: there? Well, no, there's, there's not faith. Uh. And it's been, it's, you know, the manipulation that we talked about by the president in stacking the court and changing judges that he didn't agree with. This was one of the things that um, Kamala Harris called out in a very kind of a light way in Guatemala as well. The manipulation of the courts for powerful interests, uh-huh. um, and coming down straight from the from the presidency, it's certainly something that we see in Mexico. Being able to kind of reform a justice system that has been corrupted for so long, and that has very few kind of checks and balances, is is a very difficult undertaking. But one of the things that's absolutely critical to do it is to take an emblematic case like this and send a strong signal that nobody is above the law. So again, wow. that's what people are hoping for in this case.
0: Talk about nobody being above the law. Uh, you know, as as we know, for decades throughout uh, Central America, there have been a few ruling families and everybody else at their mercy. Juan Orlando uh, is the uh, current president of Honduras. Uh, After busting his brother, Tony, for drug trafficking, you say that in February this year, the Southern District Court of New York revealed that President Hernandez himself is a target of investigation. Now, the Southern District of New York is famous for going after corruption. Trump doesn't like them at all, and that speaks very highly of them. They're deep right now into the discovery of of corruption in the Trump Organization. What is the Southern District of New York looking into with regard to uh, the current president of Honduras? Do you know?
1: Well, the, the, this is a relatively new case, and they're looking into also crimes related to money laundering and um, in, for the juris, for court jurisdiction in the United States. These would have to be cri- that, um, crimes that involved um, something within within the territory. So they they're like in the case of Tony Hernandez, it involved drug trafficking to the actual to the actual district itself. So, so that's what they'll be looking into. Um, Juan Orlando Hernandez re- responded very angrily uh-huh. like, to Congress and said the United States was intervening and actually said that, um, you know, they didn't want United States aid under under this situation. So when we get to something like, is it that's been a bit complicated? Because, of course, what the organizations are calling for is the withdrawal of U.S. aid. Um, there's a new act out called the, well, this is not new, the Berta Caceres Act. That
0: was my was next question. Then, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, well, we can kind of seg into that because, um, because the major demand is that to isolate the, um, and basically not even to isolate or to cause anything to happen in Honduras, but to send a statement that the United States government does not fund what many who consider a, di- a dictator, uh, the birth certificates act was presented several years ago, has 79 congressional sponsors and calls for the suspension of military and security aid to Honduras until the case is resolved and has several other conditions as well. And this is very important because, again, it indicates uh, um, a powerful statement in terms of the U.S. not being willing to support uh, leaders who repress and even kill their own people. We're talking about aid to security forces that are on the record as having assassinated or carried out extra ju- mm-hmm. judicial executions of Honduran people. And that act has been updated recently with the presentation of a kind of a sister act in the Senate by uh, Senator Jeff Merkley and others,
0: Good man.
1: that it says essential the yeah, that has essentially the same conditions, of justice in the case of Berta Cáceres, uh resolving a number of other uh, it's crimes, including several that have to do with other cases of land defenders in Honduras, and then also um, assuring you know the functioning of democratic institutions. Mm. There's also another bill in the um, in the uh, House of Representatives that's essentially just an updated version of the Berta Cáceres Act. So these are all working together to increase pressure to cut off the security aid. And so one of the things that we're concerned about now with this Biden administration plan too is that it's not recognizing that you cannot give you know money. For development to uh, to foreign leaders who are irresponsible and who are are demonstrably involved in acts of corruption mm. and crimes, and expect to have a positive result, you know, it's not just how much money are we going to give these people so that they can have development and stay home. That's an extremely simplistic equation that doesn't even take into account the political realities that we're talking about, not just in Honduras, but also in El Salvador and in Guatemala. So while it may sound good on the outset to say the United States is giving, you know, money to these countries so they can create jobs for their people. Mm-hmm. When you look at the real forces that are at work and the real way power is is functioning in these countries it could easily and is very likely to exacerbate rather than resolve the situation that causes people to to migrate
0: and development again you know is in the eye of the beholder and uh, security forces i've always thought that uh, yeah security forces sure they who, who and what are they securing so the, the better uh, casrus act what's the status of that now do you know
1: Well, it's still in, it's still in the, you know, in Congress, Uh and we don't have any idea when any of these will actually come to the floor. Uh-huh. Um, basically, what it says is, is that it would prohibit U.S. assistance to police or military, mm-hmm. and the Department of Treasury shall instruct U.S. representatives of, multinational, of multilateral development banks to vote against providing loans to the police or military as well. So it's a fairly broadened scope. Uh, in terms of not funding these these security forces that have, rep- yeah. you know, that have reputations of repression, yeah. which is in line with the Leahy Human Rights Laws and other laws of the United States government as well.
0: And it would be nice if. I mean, I can't help but think that a lot of people in that part of the world recognize that not all Americans are Donald Trump. We're not all imperialists. We're not all racists. There's some good people, too. And people who are listening to this can and perhaps would want to contact their member of Congress and urge him or her to support the Berta Caceres Act, C-A-C-E-R-E-S Act, which I believe was H.R. 1574. So they, they, they can encourage and people, you know, in, in Honduras realize making noise, getting out in the streets. It makes a difference. Pressure works. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's really important for them to do that. And for the related acts as well, you know, find out where their representative or senator stands on it, um, you know, pressure them. To uh, to be co-sponsors of the new bills and to support the bills and to bring them to a vote. Uh, this is just this is really important because again, it's there's no possibility that no matter how much money you give to these Central American countries, there will be an improvement in terms of creating conditions that will allow people to stay home, which is what they really want to do in most in most cases. Yeah. Unless there's a recognition of the fundamental problems that the nations face. And the fundamental problems are not just a lack of resources. The fundamental problems have to do with inequality. They have to do with, um, with the brutal exploitation and repression of the majority by a small minority, very often linked to transnational interest.
0: Uh, Yeah, there's been a lot of that over the years. And, I was in Peru in 1977, interesting electoral action happening down there right now. I was there in 1977, and I was in a small family hut in a village, which I noted had no plumbing. And this is a small village on the side of a hill. On the wall of this little family hut was a black velvet painting, which you've seen, of John F. Kennedy. And I thought that was interesting. They looked up to him, not only because he was Catholic, which does matter, but because he seemed to show respect through his Alliance for Progress. Maybe seemed is the right word. I don't know. The opportunities for a new Biden approach, approach. getting the aid where it's really needed, respecting people, listening, working with locals, having solutions not all top down, I would think that would be... In America's, the United States' best interest, and that it would, it it could happen. I mean, do you see any signs of that kind of attitude uh, emerging?
1: Um, No. (laughs) There, there seems to be a difference between the, uh, you know, the way they talk about it and the actual measures that are involved in some ways. And there's certainly are a large number of contradictions in the plan. Right. I mean, they talk about giving it to civil society instead of government to try to avoid the corruption, but that is not necessarily an improvement if there's that same kind of selectivity in terms of what civil society organizations should give it to and how that works. We're not seeing uh, an opening up of dialogue in terms of how this plan should operate we're not seeing uh, a critique of extractive projects that displace people so instead of seeing a very you know a real new model that could create uh mm-hmm. um, that benefit people in the region actually it's beginning to look more and more like the repetition of the same mistakes of the past mm.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Well, one of the things I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. China is all over Africa. They're doing uh, the Belt and Road projects everywhere, and I believe they're also in South America with so-called economic development projects. Do we know if the projects, well, are they happening in, in South America and Central America? Are they benefiting locals? Or how does or how should that factor into the Biden approach? I mean, China is just uh, there where we're not, I think. But maybe they're replicating the same uh, actions which enable corruption. What do you
1: know? Well, it's a very big question that you're asking, Bert. I mean, first of all, to place uh, supporting development and human well-being in Central America in the framework of a competition with China is to just go back to the same kind of Cold War mentality that assumes that the world was going to be divided up between superpowers. No. It completely denies self-determination. It completely denies democracy and, de- and democratic processes. You know, so we, we, I think we really want to ab- avoid that. Uh, from what we know of, of, um, of many of the projects that China has in the area, they tend to replicate many of uh, the same kinds of abuses of human rights and focus on the same kind of extractive projects mm-hmm. that the United States has in the past, which leads to, again, the same kinds of conflicts with lo- local communities that we see in the case of Berta Cazares and with others.
0: Yeah, it does seem to uh, go on. There's money to be made. And uh, the government of China now, not exactly a shining example of uh, respecting other people and democracy. And um, you, you write that the trial of the feminist land defender exemplifies the challenges to Biden's Central America
1: plan. Please explain. Well, again, what he has to do is take into account the powers that be in these nations. And he has to be willing to say sometimes you can make a stronger statement by withholding aid to um, forces within these countries that are oppressing their own people than you can by financing um, projects. that, And sometimes projects that are financed in the interest of creating jobs Oftentimes, actually, create displacement. So, what we have to see here is if the geopolitical alliance between Juan Orlando Hernandez and the United States that has existed since before, well, since especially since the coup d'etat of 2009, will be more important than the actual. Um, stated objective of creating well-being within the country so people are not forced to migrate by violence or by poverty and starvation. But so far what we're seeing is that the unconditional support of Juan Orlando Hernandez has been more important than trying to find the kinds of solutions that would allow people to stay home.
0: What about the potential and, I imagine, growing power of, of feminism in all this, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, it's been white men calling the shots, rich white men calling the shots. Hmm, we've we ever heard that before. Uh, wh- what is the potential, do you think, for, for feminism there? And you're uh, very much involved in that kind of uh, idea and movement.
1: The resistance to the 2009 coup d'etat in Honduras was extraordinary because, it, it, first of all, because people were in the streets for months. I mean, they just didn't uh, give up. They were assassinated and they were repressed and they were beaten and they never gave up. But yeah. secondly, along the lines of what you're talking about is because that it was the only time really that we've seen in um, in a movement like that, uh, women come out, they form spontaneously a group called, called Feminists in Resistance and the feminists were visible and they... They located their demands alongside the demands for ending the coup and for returning to democracy on an equal level. So their slogan uh-huh. were, was no more, you know, blows against democracy and no more blows against women, to translate, actually. But in what they were saying is that we want to return to democracy and we want to return to democracy that respects the equality of women and that, uh, respects their right to live in, in violence free, you know, in violence free conditions. So there's a strong feminist current. They had to battle with, uh, other members, you know, male members of the resistance. Yeah. They had to battle with the coup regime, obviously, which also used sexual violence in addition to general violence, particularly against the women. Uh, But they've been able to continue to organize as feminists, as land defenders, and to integrate the defense of what they call body territory, not just their territory as Indigenous people, but also within their communities of their rights to their body and to be free of violence. It's been a very profound movement that's developed there in the worst of conditions, a very hostile context, but that I think we as feminists all over the world have learned from.
0: Uh, The leadership of women, you know, it it can't be underestimated. In 1905, the first uprising in uh, Petersburg was uh, from women, and the uh, people who fought against ISIS, the leaders, were women. And I think, uh, you know, macho men don't exactly know what to do about that. and yeah. it, It's wonderful, yeah. really.
1: Um, and yeah. just well, go ahead. I think, you know, Bert, I'm going to have to go now okay. because um, you know, because I have another meeting. But thanks so much for the invitation. And it was great to talk to you in the audience.
0: Well, I hope we can uh, encourage Americans to do something about it and to support the uh, Better Caceres Act and uh, push for a new policy. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: My
0: pleasure. Bye-bye. Our guest has been Laura Carlson in Mexico City, and she writes, The trial for Berta Caceres murder will test Biden's Central America policy. The uh, strength of feminism there and uh, the possibilities of having real change, it comes from the bottom up for sure. Thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Administration. 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 Administration.
1: Hey!